0: We're going to continue our study this morning. If you want to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, we're going to pick up from where we left off last week in our study, Luke chapter 16. And if you want to stand with me as we read this portion together. Beginning at verse 14, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money... We're listening to all these things, and we're scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, and since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for the heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. You may be seated. There's no doubt about it, as you go through the Gospels and you read about all the teachings of Jesus and you read about all of His works, I've always encouraged you to make sure that you pay very close attention to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Because by and large, as Jesus teaches the kingdom principles, what He does is He often uses the religious leaders of that day As an illustration of how not to be. This is how you shouldn't be. For instance, Matthew chapter 6 on the Sermon of the Mount. Jesus says this. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to those poor, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you give to the poor, do not let your heart your your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into the inner room, close the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Notice here that Jesus often refers to what he is teaching by then contrasting to what you're not to be like. And typically, when he's talking about that, he's using the religious leaders to kind of emphasize the point. What is so interesting to me about this is that these are the religious leaders. These are not the ones we would call the worldly leaders, although when you look at the motives and of these religious leaders, they are in fact very worldly. But these are the very leaders who God had really appointed to be the overseers of his people. They were the stewards, if you will. They were the ones who had the responsibility of representing God before the people. And so, when you see here, what you see in fact, they're actually very worldly in their religiosity. Somewhere along the line, while claiming their own righteousness by observing the law and the laws that they had made for themselves, they completely missed the spirit and intent and heart of the one who gave them the law. And as a result, rather than leading people to God, they led people away from God. Again, you can see something like this in Matthew 23 where Jesus has a mouthful to say to the religious leaders. But he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves pretty strong language. You see, Jesus here, he sees them. And the irony is that Jesus sees those who are leading as the blind leading the blind. Jesus says, don't be like them. So why is that important? Because the one thing that's made clear as you go through the gospel of that the Lord is so worthy of our devotion But we have to pay very close attention to those things which he warns us against. Because people, if we're not careful, if we're not watching our walk with Christ, maintaining a yielded, humble, repentant heart before the Lord, what we can do is we become just like the Pharisees. And we can easily find ourselves drifting away into this world of cold, sterile, dead religion with merely going through all the outward motions, yet inwardly very far from the heart of God. That's the warning I see in Scripture. You know, at this point in our study, chronologically, we know that we're here, that Jesus is now within weeks of making his final ascent up to Jerusalem where he is going to be betrayed into the hands of these religious leaders. The events, the teachings between chapter 14, going into 17, it seems to have occurred on just one particular Sabbath day. There's a lot happening on this one day. And Jesus here has been began with Jesus being invited to the home of a prominent uh, Pharisee, one who is well known, high-ranking. And he was actually seeking to entrap Jesus into doing something by which they could use against him and their plot to put him to death. So we've seen that now the tensions and the hostility between Jesus and these religious leaders is at an all-time high. It's at a boiling point. The religious leaders, we know, they loathed Jesus. At this point, they detest him. He is for them public enemy number one. But they have a huge problem. That is this. Jesus is popular among the people. And he is doing works that no natural man can do. And so they have to be very, very careful on how they try to get to him. Why do they hate him so much? Well, there's some obvious reasons. They were jealous of him and his honor among the people. That's one reason. They resented that he wasn't impressed with the religious titles and their positions. They resented that he didn't adhere to all their added traditions to the law, that they had given as much weight as even the Mosaic law. They resented him because he was publicly, would often publicly humiliate them by peeling off their mask, chipping away at their veneer, and exposing them for who they really were on the inside." They disposed him for lots of reasons, but one of the reasons they really despised him was because of his associations. Not just with the disciples that he chose to have follow after him, but the fact that he actually chose to hang around known sinners and tax collectors. That Jesus didn't fall prey to everything else. He wasn't religious outwardly, but he would often associate with sinners and those who they considered, you know, evil. Now... They, on the other hand, were too righteous. They were too religious to ever want to associate with anybody who could be known as a sinner because they believed that it would defile them. Thus, when you get to chapter 15, we find the the Pharisees complaining about Jesus' association with the tax collectors and the sinners. Jesus, we saw, responded by giving three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, The parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son. And we saw that the common theme in all of those parables, of course, speaks to the fact of the joy that is in heaven when just one sinner repents of their sin and turns and is reconciled to God. But when Jesus got to the parable of the prodigal son, which is a beautiful story, a son who squanders his wealth, he leaves his father He goes out and loses all of his wealth and wild living and ultimately finds himself living among the pigs. And he finally comes to his senses and says, listen, my dad's servants have got better than I've got out here with the pigs. And so he decides to return back to his father and repent. And of course, we're given that very beautiful scene is when the father sees his son out in the distance. How he immediately takes off running to his son and he throws his arms around him and he welcomes him home. What a beautiful picture of restoration that is. It's a wonderful picture. Again, it highlights the, the graciousness, the forgiving of a loving father. And the joy that he finds when just one sinner repents. That truth that, you know, that God sent his son to save sinners. You know, to reconcile us to God through redemption. But notice that Jesus didn't leave the parable there. He went on in the parable to tell about the older brother. Remember who resented the graciousness and the forgiveness of his father toward his wayward brother due to his own self-righteousness. His sense of entitlement. His sense that he really felt he deserved it more than anyone else. And of course we saw that that story of the older brother was really a reflection of the religious leaders. Because they, too, felt entitled. They felt that they were so so good, so righteous, they deserved the favor of the Father. And they resented the Father's graciousness and forgiveness for common sinners who are undeserving. And again, when we got to chapter 16 last week, we see that chapter 16 is really two particular stories. One in the beginning and one at the end. Now, we would refer to probably the first one as a parable, and there's debate about the second part, which we're going to deal with next week, of whether or not that is a parable, but that's not the issue here. But both of these stories have something to do as Jesus then begins to deal with the issue of money and worldly wealth as far as it regards the the eternal kingdom. So last week, we went through the very first study in which Jesus told the story about a wealthy master who had a steward, a manager, who mismanages his affairs. As a result, the wealthy man called his steward to give an account, and then he dismissed him from his service. We saw how the faithful manager, now facing his future, began to take matters into his own hands and began to prepare himself for the future by investing in some friendships. So he went to the a couple of the debtors of the master and we saw how he lowered their debt for them of course he's setting him up for the future we saw that when the master saw what his unfaithful steward did that he commended him not because of his dishonesty and not because of his mismanagement but because he was shrewd enough to act on his present circumstances in order to prepare for his future Now, Jesus said that the people of this world are more often more shrewd in using their worldly resources to invest in their future than are the children of light and investing their worldly wealth in preparation for our eternal future. And, of course, the grand spiritual lesson of all this is that we are all all stewards. You know, God has given us all now this... This position of being stewards of resources that he has entrusted into our hands. Whether it's our material wealth or our talents or whatever it is, our time, we are now stewards. He's entrusted these things to us. And a disciple says this, he says, how much now can I send ahead? But a worldly man says, how much can I leave behind? You see the difference? The disciple says, how much can I send ahead and invest in eternity? And the worthy man says, how much can I leave behind? And the truth is the concept of what we believe about heaven and eternity, eternity should have every bit to do with how we live life here and using the resources that God has entrusted to us. It doesn't matter what it is. We're managers. We're managers of our children, managers of our time, managers of our money. And even, you know, you think about it, even our age, whatever it is, we have to then use it for the Lord. I love what Jim Elliott said. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He who is faithful with little will be faithful with much, and he who is unrighteous with little will be unrighteous with much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give that which is your own? And then Jesus gave the capstone last week. We saw this, verse 13. Look at it with me. He says, no no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. You can't do it, Jesus says. This is where we come into our study. Again, right here, verse 14. Now, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who were lovers of money... We're listening to all these things and we're scoffing at him. Notice here again, people, that sandwich between these two stories that deal with the issue of money that we're brought back here to this attention or this focus on the Pharisees. Why? Because they are lovers of money. Once again, Jesus has exposed their heart. He has shown where their true loyalty and devotion is—that it is not to God; that it is more to their wealth. He's speaking to their greed. When they heard what Jesus had to say, it says they scoffed at him. Literally, it means they turned their nose up to him. They wanted—they were sneering him. After all, I mean, gee, what in the world would Jesus have to know about money? He was obviously very poor didn't seem to have anything when he went anywhere. You see, the Pharisees, like a lot of the false teachers today, they consider their own wealth and prosperity as a sign of God's favor on themselves, regardless of how they achieved it or how they used it. And they profess to, to, to trust God, but they measured their lives by their own wealth and their own possessions in the same way that unbelievers do. In truth, this is true, that God always has sought the heart of his people, but he detested these ones' wealth. Why? Because it caused them to abandon a true relationship with God in love. And verse 15, and he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Once again, Jesus here zeroes in on the Pharisees. And he says to them, you know, you're those who justify yourselves. Notice this, not in the sight of God, but in the sight of men. You see, the Pharisees were far more interested in what their appearance was before men than they were before God. And so they sought these ways of justifying their greed and justifying their, 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 their hatred and all those things and trying to look spiritual, but look spiritual in the eyes of the people. You guys ever do that? You kind of get a few heads there. Come on. You want to look so spiritual in the eyes of people. And so you kind of you come to church and you can put on the Jesus smile and, and how are you, brother? Everything's good, man. You've been fighting with your wife. You know, you've been having a hassle at home. And that's the Pharisees. You see, they lived this way. Everything was a show. That's all it got to them was just being a show. And and really, but this is what Jesus says to them. He says, but God knows your hearts. God knows your hearts. People, if there's anything you should ever sink deep into your heart and mind is this, is that God always knows your heart. He doesn't just know what you do. He knows why you do what you do. Isn't that awesome? Huh? A little scary, right? He doesn't know just what we do. He knows why we do it. And he knows our motivations. Now, people, that's what we call the fear of the Lord when you finally get that. When you finally get it in your heart, listen, it's a good day. Listen to Psalm 139. You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You know, you scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with how much? All my ways. Woo, that's right. He says, even before there's a word of my tongue, behold, the Lord, you know it all. He knows. And Jesus' word to those Pharisees, listen, God knows your heart. He knows where you're really at. And I'll tell you, it will be a good day in your, all of our lives when we gain enough fear of God that we finally understand that he is always aware of where we are. He's always aware of what we're doing and even the reason for why we do what we do. And then Jesus says to them, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, and since that time, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. Now, here, Jesus is dealing with, really, the fallacies of the Pharisees, because they put all their hopes in the law of Moses, and even in their own traditions, At this point now, Jesus brings up John the Baptist, who is now already dead. He's already been put to death. But Jesus emphasizes his important ministry. Now, John the Baptist, his ministry was important because his ministry was the dividing line between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's why he's such a key figure. He was the one who was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah to come to establish the new covenant. John, we know in Scripture, he is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He is the last one under this old covenant who comes to make now the transition into the new. And that's why when you go through all four Gospels, they're all going to tell you about John the Baptist. Why? Because he is really unique. Why is that? Because he wasn't just a prophet, a voice of God, a mouthpiece of God, speaking to men on God's behalf but he was also a prophet who has prophesied about himself. When you go to Isaiah 40, it prophesied the one calling out in the wilderness, make ready for the way of the Lord. Level the highways. In Malachi 3.1, behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will uh, clear the way before me. He's talking about in Malachi chapter 5. Again, he refers to him as the Elijah to come. So John's key. So Jesus says, until that time, the only revelation of God available to people through the law and the Moses was the prophets, basically. From that time, now he says, from John all the way now to Jesus, he said, the message of the gospel declared is is that God is doing something new, something that is better, a better covenant that has been prophesied since the very beginning, From Genesis all the way to Malachi, one of the major themes of the prophets was proclaiming the hope of the coming Messiah. The law and the prophets were always moving steadily forward to this time when Messiah was coming. Until that time, everyone, every servant had to force their way into it. Some of your translations will say this, pressing into it. Matthew 11:12, Jesus says it like this. He says, "From the days of John the Baptist until, nine, the kingdom of, uh, until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take take it by force." He says, "Since the beginning of John until now, he says, this has been happening. The kingdom's been moving moving forward, but it hasn't been easy. It's been a battle." There's forces at work and of course the Pharisees were part of those forces that were working against it. Remember like the prophets before him John himself he withheld tremendous opposition and persecution because of his message. But before John's birth, remember the angel says to his father, Zechariah, that it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make a people prepared for the Lord. Here's John, this lone voice in the wilderness, standing against all the religiosity of that day and the tide of his time. He, too, faced the conflict of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And he comes and he tills the soil. He stirs the hearts, man. He calls sinners to repent. And he faces tremendous opposition. John the Baptist coming, proclaiming the kingdom of God against all this opposition. You see, throughout history, there has always been opposition to the the plan of God, to thwart the plans of God. There's always been those who stood up against what God was doing. That was true for Moses. It was true for Joshua and David and Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And I could go on with names after names after names. There's always been opposition. But Jesus here is zeroing in on the opposition of the religious leaders. And he says, Those who are going to take it are going to take it by force. In other words, it's not going to be easy. It's not something that's going to come natural. You're going to swim against the tide. You're going to stand up against the wind of your culture and of your time. You know, he says, this is going to be a battle to hold on to this kingdom. And the only way to do it is press in. Press in. Take hold of it. Hold on to it. Not by your own breath or by your own power, but by the Spirit of God. Who comes and gives you that grace? You see, what the religious leaders didn't understand, that when they took opposition against John, when they took opposition against Jesus and his disciples, they were actually opposing God himself. They were, in fact, making themselves adversaries of God. And people, that's one thing I don't want to be, is an adversary of God. So Jesus then zeroes in here on something that they were very dear to their hearts, and that is the law. He says, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. You see, the law was given to God, or given to God's people as a covenant. It affirmed, it was affirmed through the prophets in later years. But here Jesus says, listen, I want you to know, Pharisees, I want you to understand what I believe about the law, that it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for the law of God to fail. He says, I want you to know, I'm not walking away from the law here. I know what the law is, Jesus is saying. Not one thing changes. And the point Jesus is making to them, I'm not here to negate the law of Moses. Rather, I am here to fulfill the law of Moses. And there's a big difference. Matthew 5, 17, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Jesus says not one thing is going to change with regard to the law. Nothing. Not the smallest little stroke or accent is going to change. You see, we know this. God never changes. He's immutable. He can't change. His character never changes. He cannot change. His word never changes. 1 Peter 1.25, but the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which was preached to you. Now, Jesus is making it clear here. I didn't come to abolish or destroy or to do away with the law. No, I came here to fulfill the law that he came here to satisfy to fulfill every righteous requirement and demand of the law so that he might offer himself up as the perfect sacrifice for those who have broken the law this is this is really really cool to see he comes to bring a new and better covenant not of law that condemns but a, but a covenant of blood which is by grace Because here's the point Jesus is saying, the law will never change. You or anybody else is going to change it. What changes is our relationship with the law when we are found in Christ Jesus. Because our faith in Christ alone is able to save us from the justice of the law that condemns. Because in Christ we have mercy, we have grace, we have forgiveness. We have promise, and it is Jesus Christ alone who makes us righteous even in the law. It's amazing. And if you don't have Christ, people, if all you have is law, you stand condemned. It's just that simple. And then Jesus says in verse 18... Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. And I know what you're thinking, right? What's that got to do with anything? (laughs) Right? Are you guys thinking that? Why does Jesus throw that in there? What is the point? I mean, I'm tracking with it with him and what he's saying to the Pharisees here, but why now talk about divorce? We were talking about money. What's this got to do? And there is a little bit of relationship. You know, but while Jesus, we know this, has a lot to say about divorce in Matthew 19, and but he really emphasizes marriage there more than he does divorce. That isn't the point of what Jesus is making here. You see, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they claimed to follow the letter of the law. Yet in practice, they abused the law. And they manipulated the law in order to serve their own desires and to justify their own position. This is really a serious issue. In that day, the issue of divorce was a very hot topic among the religious leaders. A lot of Pharisees were getting divorced. The divorce rate was high. But it was an issue of law that comes out of Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, when it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because she has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. So here's the issue. The rabbis were arguing about what does he mean by this, the law. The real question they want to know, what does, qualifies being he finds something indecent in her? Now, we know according to the law, the rest of the law, that if two people were caught in the act of adultery with witnesses, that it was a capital offense. They were to be put to death. But here you have the issue of, so what do you do, and what does he mean by indecency? So you have two major schools of thought between Rabbi Shimei and Rabbi Hillel. And they both have their own interpretation of what means indecency. Rabbi Shimei, holds a more conservative view. He holds that a husband can only give a certificate of divorce if he has a suspicion of immorality from his wife and had no witnesses. Rabbi Hillel, on the other hand, he had this whole other more lenient approach where he kind of said anything that causes displeasure to the husband toward his wife is considered indecent. In other words... They interpreted it indecent as she could have bad breath. Or she burnt the toast in the morning. Or her looks were just not as good as they used to be. Or whatever. She's sick now. She's not doing well. So, that they would say is, is, of course, a reason to put them out for divorce. And so these two schools of thought kind of come together and they begin to argue among themselves what indecent means. What are they doing? They're trying to justify their own position. They're trying to justify what they're doing according to the law. They're playing games, is what they're doing. Jesus, in one sentence, straightens them out with clarity. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one is divorced from a husband commits adultery. And, and we know this that divorce was never, was never, is never the will and the purpose of God. Matthew 19, Jesus says, because of the hardness of the heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it has not been that way. Divorce is not the heart of God. How could it be? Why would it be? Let me ask you that. I mean, Malachi 2.16, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and in him who covers the garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts, so take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You see, we know this, that adultery is a grievous sin. You know, because it always begets more sin. You look at divorce and you see even the wreckage of divorce and the effects of the relationships of the children and the, the siblings and the friends and the resentments that it often breeds. So you say, well, why does God hate divorce? How could he not hate divorce? How could he not? You know, how many of you have gone through the anguish of divorce and you've experienced it? You know what it is. Uh, the hurt, the pain, the sorrow, the damage that is done. Maybe it was with your parents or somebody you knew and loved real well. Now, Jesus here, people, isn't saying that divorce is an impardonable sin. Aren't you glad about that? No, he's just saying it's not the heart of God and it certainly wasn't the law. It wasn't the intent of God that you would get divorce. Now here Jesus is using this issue of divorce to again expose the duplicity and the hypocrisy of the religious leaders who twist the law in order to accommodate their own desires. Thus completely missing the heart of God in the midst of it. You know, they they were like the religious leaders. They gloated in their adherence to the law. We follow the law. But the whole time they're looking for loopholes in the law so that they can do their own sin and not be bothered by it and look good in the eyes of everybody. I got divorced, but I had a very biblical reason. It was really God who told me to do it. And so they were playing games with the law doing what a lot of lawyers do today with the Constitution. They take sentences and they take it out of context and they twist it to kind of use it for what they want it to mean. And that was the Pharisees. They were playing games with the law. They were using it, trying to justify themselves through these little loopholes that they had for themselves. They were trying to justify their greed, their wealth, their, their, their own... You know, their possessions, all those things. And people, I think we see a lot of that today, don't you? I mean, people are breaking away from the truth of God's word for the convenience of their own desires. Second Timothy, Paul warns, or Paul warns Timothy, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled. Notice this they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. Here's the point God has always been after the heart. You can play all these games and try to justify yourself. But God's desire for every one of us is this. We make a mess out of things, man. We screw things up so bad. We take the good things of God and we twist them and manipulate them to to try to accommodate ourselves and justify our position. And Jesus here, he is exposing these religious leaders And it's because Jesus comes to make a way to give us a pure heart and a right heart. Again, Jesus talking about divorce here wasn't just to talk about divorce. It's to expose their hypocrisy. To expose their duplicity. Because they would simply brag about their following the Lord and the law And Jesus says, it's the law that's going to condemn you. What you hold to be so true will ultimately condemn you. In John 5.39, Jesus says to the religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. You know, when we seek to come to God and to his word, what we desire, people, we should desire more than anything, and I pray is your attitude every time you come before God's word. God, what is really your heart for me? Not what can I do and get away with this or get away with that. You see, that's game playing. But God, what is your heart for me? How can I, Lord, hear your word and hear what you might want to say to me to change me without me somehow defending myself or justifying myself? It's just having an honest relationship with God. And determining in your life, you know, it's either going to be your way or God's way. But I pray that it's God's way. The religious leaders are very religious. But they were so far from God. Boy, I pray that God spares us from me, that kind of people. Lips that honor, but hearts that are far from. But I'll tell you something, there is a joy when you finally come to the Lord in humility. Because you know why? Because Jesus described him and the great parable of the prodigal, because he is always like this. Come back, come back, return. You can be religious, what a pathetic life. Or you can decide, you know, I'm gonna follow Jesus and I'm gonna hear what he has to say. I'm gonna let him determine how I live my life. That's the better choice. That is clearly the better choice. Following Jesus. Father, we thank you this morning. Lord, we've dealt with things here that are somewhat hard to understand. And yet, God, I think we can see clearly the point of it all, Lord, is that you desire the heart. Rathering us than us, Lord, just coming together with a lot of pretension and a lot of outward show that Lord, your heart, Lord, is to change us from within. I pray that would be the difference. I pray, Lord, that would be the difference in my life. I pray that would be the difference in this fellowship. And each of us, Lord, as we now live for you in a world, God, that is going way, way, way off in opposition to you. I pray, God, your spirit would draw us close, that you would draw us in, Lord, that we would draw near to you. And we just submit those things to you this morning. If you're here this morning and you need prayer, we have people up here to pray with you. Maybe this morning God is just speaking to your heart and he's saying, man, there's some Pharisee in me. I gotta get rid of this. That's how we're not to be. Jesus tells us how to be. And he gives us everything we need for life and godliness if we just turn to Jesus, confess it all, and just get right with God in honesty. And so Jesus, I pray, Lord, you move in this place this morning. Open our hearts to you, Lord. These things we pray in your name.